So I'm going to be a little bit all over the map this morning. I don't have one particular passage I'm preaching on. Uh, this, is, this, this, um, this topic is kind of like a jewel that you've got to look at from several different angles. Uh, and so we're going to be looking all through Scripture and asking the Lord to, to help us to see what Sola Scripture is all about. So will you pray with me before we begin? Oh Lord, we are so thankful for your living and active word. God, we know that it does not return void, that it has the power to accomplish the things that you purposed it to do. And so, Lord, we pray that as you open uh, your word to us this morning, Lord, that we would see and hear Jesus, that we would see and hear the power, Lord, of what happens when you speak into someone's life. God, the way that you can change them through your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is an imperishable seed. And God, we pray that you would uh, implant it in us again to help us to grow. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So since we're talking about the Reformation as an historical uh, period of time, we need to start with a little bit of history and kind of setting the stage and the problem. Uh, Nick has done a great job with that over the past uh, couple weeks, just, just situating us and helping us to see what was it that the Reformers were so amped up about. Uh, why was it that, that there was a break um, that ultimately happened um, where we have Catholic and Protestant? So we need to look at a couple of the things that, um, that Catholics, the, the Roman church was saying during the time of the Reformation. Number one, there, there are three things I'm going to highlight here real quickly. Number one, church tradition and scripture are authoritative. Or excuse me, church tradition and scripture are authoritative and rule over faith and practice. So part of that, you're like, oh, that, that actually sounds good. Yes, scripture should rule over faith and practice, but church tradition they're holding, that is an equal uh, source of authority. Number two, the church authorized scripture. Maybe you've heard that before. Even, uh, even people out in the world who don't believe in Jesus sometimes have that perception of how we got our Bible, that there was a group of guys in a room and closed doors and all this stuff in which we, those people decided to make all the decisions about what books were going to be in the Bible. That's not the way it happened. Uh, the way that it happened is that the church saw over time, they received scripture. They saw what was uh, what the books that were inspired. It was, it was clear to them. So that was a problem. That was one of the things that the, church, that the uh, Roman church was saying, that church authorized scripture versus received it. Number three, scripture must be interpreted by the church. So the church is in some way over scripture. Let's read this um, quotation from... The, some documents from the Council of Trent. You guys are going to be really tired of the Council of Trent by the time we, <laughs> we finish this series. Those jokers. The Council also clearly perceives that these truths and rules are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions, which received by the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, have come down to us, transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand. Following then the examples of the Orthodox Fathers, it receives and venerates with a feeling of piety and reverence all the books both of the Old and New Testaments, since one God is author of both. Also the traditions, whether they relate to faith or to morals, as having been dictated either orally by Christ or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church in unbroken succession. So, you're reading that, and again... Part of it sounds like, gosh, you know, they're, they're, they're revering the Old and New Testaments. That's what we're all about at Four Points. And then they get to that bit about traditions. What is that all about? Where do these traditions come from? Are they written down? What's, what's happening there? But they are holding it as an equal uh, source of authority uh, at the same time. Um, and they are saying, look, the church has the right to interpret Scripture and say what uh, it really means. So why was this an issue for the reformers, and why is it an issue for us? Well, let's imagine that you are playing a game. Let's say it's Monopoly. Everybody knows Monopoly. It's got a clear set of instructions, right? As you open up the Monopoly uh, rules, you see they're specific. Free parking is just a free resting place, no matter how you play it at your house. That is the, the rules in Monopoly. The bank is the one place that anyone can get alone. Um, of money from. That's what it says in the rules, right? Now, I know that's not maybe the way you played at home, but that is, that's, and sometimes you complain about why the game takes so long, but it's because you keep on loaning people money. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, imagine that in the middle of the game, someone produces a second set of rules. A second set of rules, and they expect everyone to play by them, as uh, concomitant with the first set of rules, equally authoritative with the, the rules that came in the box, which they say was produced by the original authors of Monopoly. Okay? <laughs> so what is going to and sometimes those rules conflict with the first set. So what is inevitably going to happen? The same thing that happens every time Monopoly is played, right? Conflict, right? There's going to be issues. Uh, somebody is going to flip the table. Because which set of rules, right? Which set of rules is to be adhered to? And how are we going to continue to play the same game? That's what the reformers are asking. So uh, Nick started out the series with grace alone. Grace alone was the issue that kind of broke things open, that got, that got Martin Luther and the Catholic Church talking and brought them to loggerheads. But the, the real issue as we discover over time, is this issue of sola scriptura. What decks of cards are we playing from? What sets of rules are we going to adhere to when it comes to things that are important about the Christian faith? So let's throw out a couple. The Bible teaches that all have sinned except Jesus. Nick read Romans 3 uh, a couple weeks ago, 10 through 12, that diagnoses our spiritual condition. Every one of us has sinned before God. Hebrews 4.15, though, says that Jesus was without sin. And yet tradition of the church said that Mary was also sinless. What are we going to do about that? How about another one? The Bible teaches that Christ offers his sacrifice once for all. That language is used over and over again through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.27, 9.28, and 10.10 all use that language that Christ offered himself once for all. But tradition says that the priest sacrifices Christ on the altar at Mass every week. Okay, third one. The Bible says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. That's 1 Timothy 2.5, right? Our first rule book. But tradition says that Mary is a co-mediator with Christ. So you can see where the issues come in because this second set of rules is contradicting the first set that God has given to us. So let's talk a little bit about what sola scriptura means. When we use that phrase, sola scriptura means scripture alone. So here's my practical definition for you. Scripture alone is our final authority for life and practice. Scripture alone is our final authority for life and practice. So on any topic that Scripture teaches, it is the supreme court of understanding on that topic. Now, Scripture doesn't teach us how to fix a bicycle, right? That's not the purpose of Scripture. Scripture teaches us how to live all of life. It teaches us how we should fix bicycles for other people, but the point is not to fix a bicycle. It is teaching us about life, how to live life a life that pleases God, and where our salvation comes from in, in a number of other things. So Luther's opponents believed that church councils and popes could not err. So when they spoke on behalf of God, they could not be in error. And yet he offered them examples in which they had contradicted one another. But he said, and we believe that Scripture does not err. There's no contradictions uh, in, in the Bible. So why do we hold to this idea, this doctrine of sola scriptura? Well, since we believe that the Bible is the highest authority for life and practice, where are we going to go? We're going to go to the Bible, right? We're going to go to the Bible. Let the Bible speak about itself for a minute. So my first point and we, as, as we address this idea is that God speaks to people. God speaks to people. We have to believe that in order to, to approach Scripture properly. God creates, uh, so let's think about what happens in, in Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3. Number one, God creates everything by speaking. So speaking is a thing for him. For whatever reason, that is an aspect of who he is. He communicates. He has always been communicating throughout eternity within himself. So, so speaking as, as God creates our world is something that God does with people to help them. So if you could put that first slide up here, I made a little slide, and, and these are ways in which God speaks throughout 
the entirety of the Bible. But I just wanted to look at just a little slice for us to see um, the way that God talks to people in Genesis 1 through 3. First, God speaks to people to communicate his commands. In Genesis 1.28, God gives uh, Adam and Eve the clear directive that they are to fill the earth and to subdue it. They are to be fruitful and multiply and bring everything God, uh, under God's authority and rule. Number two, God speaks to people to warn them of consequences. So we see God coming to Adam and saying, look, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's going to be consequences because the wages of sin is death. You're going to die. He, number three, he speaks to people to rebuke them, right? So God is, when God sees sin and evil, he speaks to it. He says, that's wrong. Genesis 3, 9 through 11, God is calling out Adam and Eve uh, through a series of questions. He says, where are you? I.e., you have run away from me. That's not right. He says, have you eaten from the, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? God knows that he did. He's asking those questions as a diagnostic to get them to see we've done wrong before God. Number four, God speaks to people to pronounce judgment. So God has to assign consequences when things uh, are, are done outside of his, his intentions. Uh, he speaks to Adam and Eve, and, and, and there are curses that are placed on their lives that, can, that are only removed later uh, as, as we uh, go to be with the Lord. Those, those curses are still in effect today. Work is still hard, amen? Childbearing is still hard, from what I hear, right? So, <clears throat> difficult. Um, number five, God speaks to people to proclaim the hope of redemption. Right in the middle of God assigning a consequence to Eve, he tells um, Adam and Eve that there is going to be a serpent crusher that is going to come and is going to smash the head of the enemy. He's going to be the one who will redeem them from the sin that they brought on themselves. And then throughout the book of Genesis, we see God continuing to speak. God speaks to Noah and tells him of the upcoming flood. God speaks to Abram, and he tells him to go to the land that he'll show him, and that he's going to bless all of the nations of the earth through him. God speaks to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then God, as we go into Exodus, God speaks to Moses to command uh, Pharaoh to, to let his people go. So we see that God has a commitment to speak to people because he's committed to a relationship with them. He wants to reveal himself and his ways to you and to me so, because he's offering us an opportunity to know him and an opportunity to partner with him. So my second point as we look at this idea of sola scriptura is that God uniquely inspires scripture uniquely inspired scripture. So tra tradition is not inspired in the same way. God's, uh, God's revelation to us in scripture is different. In Exodus 24, God announces that he's going to write the words of the covenant on these tablets. And so he does that once, and then Moses throws them down and breaks them in a fit of rage when he sees uh, the people of Israel uh, committing idolatry. Uh, and then God writes them again with his hand. But that's, to my knowledge, that's the last time that God writes anything with his own hand except maybe that little passage in Daniel where he's writing some things on the wall. Okay? God instead moves to something different. He begins to have people write down his words for him. So in Exodus 34, God commands Moses to write on his behalf. Let's look at that verse in Exodus 34, 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So God gives Moses the job of writing down his very words for him so that people understand what his covenant is going to be like, what this relationship is going to be like between God's people and himself. So this, this passage begins God's inspiration of people to write down his words so that people can understand him, his promises, and his commands. So, then throughout the rest of the Bible, we have this idea that the word of the Lord comes to an individual, and they write it down, or it is written down for them. So, based on what Nick preached in, in the first week about us and our sinfulness and our depravity, you may well ask this question. How does this work, since we know that people are sinful, and totally depraved. We know that Moses wasn't perfect. 
right? Moses killed an Egyptian. Moses uh, disobeyed the Lord in such a way that he was not allowed to go into the promised land. So Moses wasn't perfect. How do we have imperfect people writing God's perfect word? Well, God speaks to us about this in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. This is a powerful passage about God's unique revelation to us in Scripture. Look what it says with me. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So Scripture is not made up by people. It's not just something they were, that they were feeling one day, feeling particularly spiritual, and they decided to write something awesome. These prophecies of Scripture come to us because they were inspired by God. Look at the second part there. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's not, not get the idea um, that people weren't involved because their personalities and their vocabulary and all those kinds of things are clear. As you begin to read um, the Apostle Paul, it is, it, is, it is Paul's words. But at the same time, as we continue to read it, we see that it is inspired. It is God's words. As a matter of fact, this, this passage tells us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, uh, that word, that Greek word for carried along uh, is the same word that we would use uh, for ferry, like the Staten Island ferry that you would take uh, from Staten Island over to, uh, over to Manhattan. So, um, so God is actually carrying them along like that. Like those people on that ferry boat are going across the water, but they wouldn't get very far without that ferry boat. So God has the capacity to speak accurately about himself through human speech. He's able to say what he wants to say through a human speaker. So this is what God says about, excuse me, this is what Scripture says about itself, that men who are clearly imperfect were used to write Scripture, to the point at which Paul says to his protege, Timothy, Timothy and we'll get this back to the Scripture later, but in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the, 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 the fact that it is a living word comes from the, uh, from the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who has spoken it. It's the why Scripture continues to speak to the church throughout all of these centuries because they are God's very words, which is why we never add to them. That's what I'm hoping not to do this morning as I preach. Right? I don't want to add to anything that God says. I just want to lay it out there so that you can see it clearly. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So, for that reason, we don't want to add anything to what God says. And we don't want to take anything away from what God says. Instead, we want to keep God's commandments so we continue to look and see what God's word says. This is why we preach through the Bible the way that we do every week. So this is the problem with human tradition, right? When we have two sources of authority, one of them is always going to get a little higher than the other. And in the case of the Catholic Church and in others, it's always that second source that seems to have some kind of edge over Scripture. Now, Jesus encountered this also in his earthly ministry. In Mark chapter 7, let's read uh, this, this short passage. Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees, and he said to them, Well does Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So God's word told people, to honor their fathers and mothers. And part of what they were responsible to do is to make sure that they had money that was set aside to take care of their mom and dad in their old age. There wasn't any social security that was coming for them at the end of their lives. There wasn't any 401k happening at the end of their lives. Their children were responsible to take care of them. And yet the Pharisees were encouraging people to take that money and to give it at the temple that they might have used to take care of their parents. So when the parents ran into trouble and didn't have enough money at the end of their lives and the kids don't have any money to care for them, they say, too bad, the money has been given to God. The point that Jesus is trying to make is clear. You have taken God's clear command and you have demoted it. 
you have put it in a place that is below your own instruction, your own traditions, your own man-made theological loopholes. And this is the way that we as human beings operate. It's why we need to continue to read God's word because there's always something that we believe that that we think that we should exalt above scripture. So then, what is our attitude towards tradition, particularly church tradition? Well, we don't want to reject the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the writings of the early fathers, the Westminster Confession, etc., etc. Instead, we want to weigh them against Scripture, because Scripture alone is authoritative for life and practice. And Scripture alone is God-breathed. Augustine is not. Augustine may be helpful, but his his writings are not God-breathed. Scripture is without error, and the writings of Martin Luther are not. So, if what those saints in the past, those, those, um, those, those men, have said lines up with Scripture and communicates things in a way that's clear and is communicable, we say thanks to God. And, you know, high-five Martin Luther. High-five Augustine. Thank you, guys. I'm grateful for the spade work that was done in Nicaea against the Arians who, who believed that Jesus was a created being. It means that I don't have to do that spade work myself over and over again. I can look at what they did and say, you know what? It's the same old lies that I hear coming at me from all of these uh, cults that are around us who believe that Jesus was a created being, right? It helps us and reminds us that we are combating similar heresies, similar lies over time. So God has been good to, to give us a track record of him working with people. So this is what the five solas are, right? They are traditional expressions of doctrine, but ones that we find clearly in Scripture, And we also see them uh, being lived out in the life of the early church. So, because Scripture is uniquely inspired, we vehemently reject man-made doctrines such as those established by the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus is not God because Scripture tells us that He is. The question is asked in the New Testament, who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet, we see Jesus forgiving sins. It's one of the many ways in which we see that Jesus Christ is God. If you missed last week's sermon, you need some help on that topic, go and watch that sermon again. It's awesome. We also reject Mormon doctrine that says that God the Father was once not God, that he, was not, he is not omnipresent or omnipotent, and he is the, but one of many gods. Very confusing when you listen to them. They're going to use a lot of kind of Christian-y, vocabulary, but when you dig down into what they actually believe about the nature of God, it is radically different. It is a distortion that we reject. We reject this is because it's, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's, it's, it's also kind of funny because they believe that, that you, can, you too can become a God, just like God, if you just follow our man-made religion, right? Uh, that's very convenient. I think it's a great way to get followers, I'm sure, because we all want to be God. We all want to replace God, but we are not him. Uh, so we reject this because it's not what the Bible teaches. Without Jesus, nothing that was made was made. John 1, 3. Jude 25 talks about how God was there before time. He is outside of time. So we reject Catholic tradition as well, tradition that conflicts with the Bible, such as works-based salvation via the sacraments. We don't believe in this idea of infused grace. We believe in imparted grace that comes to us through faith and us trusting in what Jesus has done for us. We reject the idea that Mary is a co-redeemer with Jesus because of what we see in 1 Timothy 2.5. And we reject the idea that we should revere icons or saints from the past because God himself is the only one who is worthy of worship, no matter what man-made tradition says. Amen? I hope to hear a few more amens there. (laughs) All right, so because the the words of Scripture are God, maybe I need to preach this sermon again. Uh, because, Because the words of Scripture are God's very words, it is also trustworthy in a way that nothing else is. So let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, my, point, my third point here is that Scripture is trustworthy. It's uniquely trustworthy. Let me slow things down for just a second and talk to some of you guys who, who maybe got dragged here uh, by a family member, and you, you're not a believer. You would not claim to be a Christian. 
just want to give you some help as, as we're talking about this idea of Scripture, because you may be kind of going, you know what, from everything I hear out there in the, word, the world, uh, Scripture is not as reliable as, as they're saying that it is. Let me give you some help uh, just in terms of looking at Scripture's trustworthiness. One of the most powerful pieces of evidence that you can have um, in, a, in a court of law trying to prove that something happened is the evidence of hostile witnesses. So someone who doesn't believe in whatever it is that you're talking about or whatever it is that you're trying to prove. If you can get a hostile witness to confess to some of the things that are going on, that is a very strong piece of evidence. So let me give you three hostile witnesses among several that you could look at from the first and second century who would have been alive during or directly after the time period in which Jesus Christ was on earth ministering. First of which is Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus uh, is an historian, and he's, he's writing down the history of the Jewish people uh, and, and what happened um, during uh, the, the, um, the conquest by Rome and a number of other things. But Josephus writes about Jesus and Christianity. He says that Jesus did wondrous works. He says that his followers said that he was the Messiah, and that Jesus was put to death by Pontius Pilate. All of those things we see in the Gospels. They're clear aspects of what we would confess as Christians. Second hostile witness would be Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, no friend of Christianity at all. His allegiance would have been to Rome and to the emperor. But in his writings, when he's talking about Christians, he said that um, Christianity is attributed to the person of Jesus, and that he was a man who was killed under Pontius Pilate. So Christianity isn't something that people came up with afterwards. It's attributed to Jesus Christ himself. Even someone who is hostile sees the difference between the world today, what, what people, people say out there, that Christianity is something that was, again, made up in kind of like the back doors, uh, you know, in, in, in a closed room somewhere after Jesus had left the scene. And it's not the, not the truth. Because Jesus is the one who uh, begins to teach people and gain followers and teach them uh, the ways of the kingdom of God. So we've got um, Tacitus, the Roman historian, says these facts, these things that are true about, um, about Jesus. Pliny, another uh, historian from that time period during the second century, he says that Christians meant, met to worship Christ as God. So even in the second century, we have someone who is telling us that um, Jesus Christ was worshipped as God. Again, that's something that people in our day and age want to believe that uh, was made up by people later on. And yet, we have evidence from a hostile witness here saying this is what Christianity was about. It was about worshipping Jesus Christ as God. So these, these are just corroborations of the facts that we see already written down for us in the Bible about Jesus and Christianity. Another great external witness, if we're just looking at things uh, from, from science and, um, and his, history, um, is manuscript evidence. Uh, the manuscripts that we have from the New Testament, we have over 5,600 New Testament manuscripts. And as archaeology continues to, to pursue its course, I'm sure that they won't be the last because Somewhere out there, there will be more. I want to highlight a few of them uh, that are particularly interesting because there are, are lots of manuscripts which all corroborate. They all show us uh, that the scripture was translated, excuse me, not translated, but it was transmitted properly over time. P52. P52 is a, is a papyrus, and they, they number them and, and give them special little names uh, you know, to be able to identify them from one another. But P52 is this fragment of the Gospel of John that they have found. And historiographers have actually dated this to the second century. Second century. This, so if John's Gospel is written towards the end of the first century, and this was written in the second century sometimes, that means that this, we have a copy of Scripture that was copied down Sometime, somewhere within 100 years of when the original manuscript of the Gospel of John would have been created. Not only that, but we, they found this in Egypt. So we know that this message was really important. The Gospel message was so important that it was getting all around uh, the region. And so um, this, this fragment was, was stored and, and kept and, uh, and was, was later found. Uh, so and, it, and again, it corroborates what we see uh, in our Bibles today. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls, if you haven't heard of these uh, before. Uh, there were a set of discoveries in the 1940s in Israel where they found 11 caves that were full of 100 ancient manuscripts. And there are um, complete and fragment, fragmented pieces of uh, all of the Old Testament books except for the book of Esther. And you know what they've discovered? Those writings that were kept for hundreds of years are exactly the same words that we find in our modern Bibles. The oldest fragment that they've got in that set of uh, manuscripts is a fragment of the book of Samuel dating to the 3rd century B.C. That is 300 years before Jesus Christ came in his earthly ministry. 300 years B.C. That's amazing. But there are older manuscripts than that. Um, uh, one of them was found in uh, just southwest of Jerusalem. There was a there was a dig that took place in a tomb, and they found these little silver scrolls in the tomb. And they were wondering, what is written on these little silver scrolls? So it took them a really long time to figure out how to, how to get these scrolls unwound without destroying the contents of them. But you know what they found on those silver scrolls? It was a copy of the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, which we use all of the time here to close out our services, right? The Lord bless you and keep you make his face to shine upon you. That passage was found on these little silver scrolls. And they, uh, the, the historiographers have looked at those silver scrolls and they have dated them back to the 7th century BC, so 700 years before Christ. Now it's interesting, again, because textual critics once thought that this, this uh, passage from number six was an add-on. It was something that, that um, they added on to um, the Bible later on uh, that it was something that they uh, added after the exile. But the exile took place well after the 7th century. And so we know that this was a part of the original, uh, n- the, the original book of Numbers. So it's awesome. Science, history, archaeology continue to contribute to our, to our confidence and our faith that, that God's word is trustworthy. What we have in our Bibles today is what was ha- uh, written back then. You should also, if you're, if you're, if you're curious, if you want to know about, about why Scripture is trustworthy, um, consider this. There's some internal evidence as well. There are 66 different books in the Bible there are, uh, which span the course of over 1,500 years. A lot of different authors, and yet there's one consistent message. Look at all the world's major religions from Islam um, to Buddhism to Hinduism, and that message changes over time. But the Bible's message never changes. It's always consistent. It's the story of God's redemption of humanity from cover to cover. Now, people have raised all sorts of issues about supposed contradictions uh, in Scripture for the past few hundred years. They're all things that we've, we've heard before. Uh, if that is an issue for you, an honest issue, and you, and, and you um, considering whether or not Scripture is trustworthy, come and talk to us about some of those things. If we don't, if we don't have the answer right away, we can look them up for you. Uh, play Stump the Elder with us, right? Uh, just just see, see what we can come up with. Um, because all of these issues are things that have been considered uh, before, and there are reasons behind uh, some of the things that you have heard of being contradictory. But the biggest thing that you can do if you are struggling with this idea of Scripture's trustworthiness is to simply pick it up and read it. It's interesting. I've been doing a lot of reading about uh, the doctrine of Scripture over these past few weeks, and that's the thing that the theologians keep on coming back to. They just say, just pick it up and read it. It, it, it. it will commend itself to you. It will show you itself its trustworthiness as you simply pick it up and read it. There is something different about the living and active Word of God. So God is faithful to the message that he has preserved for us, which is part of what we see in the Reformation. Because during the time of the Reformation, the church has gone off the road and into a ditch. It's not doing what God purposed it to do. And yet God faithfully brings it out of the ditch, repairs it, and sends it back on its way. And 500 years later, by God's grace, after the Reformation, here we are with the same message that the church has always believed, that Scripture alone is authoritative for life and practice. 
So the, the reformers saw the necessity of Scripture, both for salvation and for growth in Christ. They saw that it was uniquely important and necessary, which is why they were so passionate about preaching Scripture. This idea about uh, us preaching through books of the Bible is something that was done in the early church, but it's renewed during the Reformation. It's something that they become really excited about. So my, my fourth point here is that Scripture is necessary. Scripture is necessary. So let's talk about it in two dimensions, first of which is for salvation, and second of, second of which is for growth. So let's tackle salvation first. First uh, Peter 1.23 says this about Scripture. This is awesome. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter reminds us that we are saved as we hear the message of what God has done for us. Through Scripture's very words, we hear God's message to us. And he highlights the, the idea that, that God's Word is an imperishable seed. It lives in us, and it creates new life in us it is, as it is implanted in our hearts. Hopefully you can still remember that moment, if you're a Christian, that moment when the lights came on, and you were suddenly aware of your need for Jesus, and you placed your trust in him. I hope you can remember that moment so clearly. It's an amazing, amazing, um, amazing circumstance in your life. It's an amazing time. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. So we see, everybody sees that God has, is powerful, that he's made all things. But we need his living word. His, his uh, words to us in Scripture, his written word, to explain to us that although we have selfishly tried to make all of life about us, God prepared for us a remedy for our sin and for our selfishness in the person and work of Jesus, that he really did come to earth and live a sinless life on our behalf, that he died a death that we should have died, that he was resurrected on the third day. That is information that we don't get just by looking at the clouds outside. So when we hear that message, our hearts are made alive, Peter says. And he says the only way that God, and it's interesting because the, the, the language that is used seemed to push the boundaries of what we understand as reality, right? This idea of being born again. How do you be born again? In John chapter 3, Nicodemus is kind of throwing up his hands and going like, I really don't understand this. It's because God is explaining a mystery to us in the best words that he has available to us. It's something that, that bends our brains when we try to understand the fact that God has given us a new life in Jesus. So Luther's contention was that salvation was found in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the words of Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. So Scripture then becomes the faithful light in this world that is the, uh, that is showing us the path, the way home. And it's the only light that's out there. But as we look at the path that Scripture creates for us, it's a very bright path. So let's talk some about sanctification and growth and how Scripture is necessary for that. Love this passage from Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus is, has been fasting for 40 days. And the devil comes to him and, and begins to tempt him uh, to do certain things that would, that would draw him off of the path that God has clearly set uh, for him so that he can be the savior of the world. Jesus was hungry for food, and yet he says this. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So... Jesus, it's, it's amazing to, to read these words because at this moment, Jesus was super hungry. 40 days of not eating, man, my, I would be crying for some Del Taco, right? Uh, just anything, anything to put in my mouth uh, to relieve the pangs of this hunger. This is, this, is, um, this is amazingly difficult. I fasted for a few days before, but nothing like 40 days. Uh, Jesus, but the reason that Jesus did it was because he was hungry for God and for his purposes. So what is he doing out there in the wilderness? He is meditating on scripture. And we can see that by the scripture that he is, he is quoting to the devil. It comes largely from the book of Deuteronomy. So we can imagine Jesus is having a 40-day 
Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. It's awesome. So if Jesus is hungry for God's word, Jesus, who created all things, he's divine, he's without sin, if Jesus is hungry for God's word and he believed that man should not live by bread alone but by the every word that comes from the mouth of God, then who are you or I to think that we don't need scripture to become more like him? Amen? We need God's word implanted in our hearts and not just on a Sunday morning. We need it throughout the week. We need to be feeding ourselves from God's word because bread was regular fare. Right? This wasn't a special steak dinner at the end of the month if you, got a, uh, if you got a raise. This was regular fare. This is what people ate every day to sustain them. So, so Jesus is drawing that analogy. It's something that you need all the time uh, in your home uh, and, and studying with others as well. If you're not already a part of a, a small group or a dwell group or a forge group, regularly studying God's word with other believers, you need to be doing that. We'd love to set you up with, with one of those groups. Now, sometimes we would say that we believe that Scripture is necessary for our life, for us to grow in Jesus. But our lives say something different. Because maybe we actually show with our lives that something else is more necessary than Scripture. Maybe it's watching sports or listening to a podcast that you are always listening to on the way home from work. Maybe it's reading self-help books or magazines. Maybe it's attending a workout class. I don't know what it is for you, but there's something out there that may be taking the place of the importance of Scripture in your life. It's amazing. One of the keys to the Reformation being the big deal that it is and, and that it was is because there was, a, there was a, an incredible hunger for God's Word. Uh, Luther's German New Testament, Luther translated the, the New Testament on his own. And uh, there were, over the course of three years, they went through 43 editions and 100,000 copies. Now, that's just in Germany. This was a German New Testament. Over the course of the next 10 years, there were three or four other different translations of the New Testament into uh, other languages that took place. And as the Reformation, this message of the Reformation spread, people wanted to read the Bible for themselves. So there was an overwhelming hunger for the Word of God because people had been starved for so long. They're being taught the traditions of the Catholic Church and, being in, and having the Bible interpreted and watered down in, in a lot of different ways, but they're not hearing what God's Word has to say for itself. So as, as the printing press comes along and they're able to distribute these copies of, of the Bible, people are incredibly hungry for what God has to say. So, so my, my question to you this morning is, what might happen if the church became hungry again like that for God's word? What would happen in our church? What would happen in the churches in our area if we had that kind of hunger, that kind of burning desire to read to study, to memorize, meditate, to apply, to live out the words of Scripture. How would we grow? And what kind of legacy would we leave? Because the Reformation is, and what God did during that period of time is still echoing into today. What might we be able to do for those who are coming after us? What kind of legacy could we leave if we develop that kind of hunger for God? Well, sometimes we're not hungry because we're filling up on other things. Have you ever made, uh, you spent spend a little while making a meal for someone and uh, you're just so excited to sit down and eat it with them and they, and they walk in and, and, and you serve them the food and they're like, oh, it looks really great, but I already ate. Right? You're like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> I can't believe this, you know? You already ate. So, so you're full. So you take a little nibble, but you're like, eh, I'll, maybe I'll get, eat it later. It's, it's so depressing. But sometimes we are, we are not hungry for God's word because we're filling up on other things. Sometimes those things can be good things, but they can't take the priority that, um, that Scripture should have in our life. Let me ask you this. What has captured your appetite? What are you filling up on that's not God's word, that's, that's dulling that hunger uh, that should be there in your life? I love this quote from Martin Luther. He says, pause at every verse of scripture and shake, as it were, every bow of it, 
that if possible, some fruit may drop down. That's a great way to read your Bible right there. Man, just imagine it's a fruit tree and you're just like, man, I'm going to get some fruit out of this doggone tree. I'm going to shake it until it gives me something, right? You're digging it because you believe that there's fruit there. You believe that God can speak to you through his word. All right, so let me, let's talk for a few minutes lastly about how scripture alone is sufficient. And I want to talk about that again in those two dimensions of salvation and of, uh, and of, of sanctification. First of all, let's go back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, we think about our salvation. How do we, how are we born again? How are we transformed? How are we changed unless God words, God's word comes to us? We hear these God-breathed words. And then thinking about how do we live out the Christian life? Because that's what that passage is talking to us about, right? About how we're supposed to be equipped for every good work. That's living out our Christian life. And it's interesting, the kinds of things that, that, um, that Paul says it's profitable for. Profitable for teaching, because you need to know something. Profitable for reproof, because you're going to need to be rebuked by God. Profitable for correction, because you need to see the right way to do things. He needs to reorient you. Profiting for training in righteousness, because you need to practice it over and over again. That's what training is all about, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So think about every good work for a minute. What does that look like in your life? How about your job work? Um, how about the ministry that God gives you? How are you going to be equipped for those things? How are you going to be equipped for difficult parenting issues? How are you going to be equipped for your single life? How are you going to be equipped to be a good student if you're still in school? How are you going to be equipped for evangelism, sharing the message of the gospel with others? How are you going to be equipped for living faithfully when difficult health issues come and you become sick? How are you going to be made ready for that when the crisis hits? apart from the living and acting, active word of God. The scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for us. We're supposed to be able to grow so that when that crisis hits, we're ready. Or when there's an opportunity, when there's a golden opportunity to serve the Lord, that we're ready for that moment as well. We're equipped for every good work. So we then are supposed to apply God's words to our hearts and believe it. So we're believing it and we're living it out. We can tell a lot about what we believe about thing, a thing by how we live it out. Let's use one last example here from Numbers chapter 14. The people of Israel were challenged to believe God's word. He had told them from the moment that they left Egypt that they were going to be taken to a promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. It was going to provide for them abundantly more than they needed. And so in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we find themselves right at the edge of what God has spoken to them about. He's told them, this is going to be the land that I'm going to give to you. And so Moses sends out spies. Uh, in our staff meetings, we like to call them, uh, some of them, two of them are good spies. Ten of them are not so good. We don't really well, like those guys. But um, ten of them come back with this, with this bad report. And they say, you know what? The land is really good. It is exactly what God said it was going to be. And yet there are these people that live there that are amazingly big, and I don't think that we can take them. So we need to figure out some other way of, of, uh, of living out the life that God has for us. Uh, we, need to, we need to step back and, and do something else. But Joshua and Caleb see things God's way. Let's look at this passage in Numbers 14, 6 through 9. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, 
for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. So look at that passage. Why did Joshua and Caleb say, yes, we can? Is it because they had an overwhelmingly uh, positive personality? No, they saw the same things that everybody else saw, but they believed God's word was true. And because of that, they saw that God had, uh, had removed the protection of these people and that the Lord was with the people of Israel, and that they did not need to fear. So why did they say, yes, we can? It was because they believed that all that was needed was God's report. All they needed was God's say-so and that he was going to give them the land. Isn't it amazing? God's word always cuts through all of the whispers and discouragement and doubt. It reminds us that he is always with us, that we are equipped to do everything that he has commanded us to do through his word. God's promises about Joshua and Caleb told them all that they needed to know, no matter what the size of the giants is that they faced. I don't know what the circumstance is that you may be facing in your life, but God's word has the power, the capacity to equip you for the good work that God wants you to do, for the faithfulness that he wants you to to engage in. God wants to equip us through his word if we will give ourselves in faith to studying it and applying it. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we read your word, as we look at these various passages that remind us how much we need you. Lord, we need your word. We need for you to speak to us. How else are we going to be transformed but that you speak to us and make us new? Lord, we thank you for the continual renewing of our hearts that happens as we open your counsels. Lord, as we look at um, the gospel and how Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death, God, I pray that if there are any here this morning who have not trusted in you, Lord, that they would trust in you this morning, that they would see you as trustworthy, they would begin to open up your word and see who you are and what you've done for them. God, for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to remove some of those things in our lives that are dulling our appetites and our hunger for the word of God, that we would be uh, hungry in the ways that that, um, people were during the Reformation that we would be transformed and then that our world, our society would be transformed just as it was back then. Pray that you would do your sanctifying work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.